Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Maria Grashvogel, the clothing designer in London. Obsessed with the idea that clothing can transform your body, your mood, and your confidence, Maria experiments with innovative cutting, always keeping the woman who wears the clothing front of mind. She's personally committed to preserving the craft of luxury fashion and is working with a technological partner to reimagine the future of fashion. One could easily describe Maria as a fashion architect, instinctively interested in material, shape, form, and flow. Today, we talk to Maria not only about her clothes, but about embracing change in a changing world. Maria, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start really to just ask you a bit about yourself. Tell us a bit about what you do and how you work. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I've always had a slightly different approach as a designer, where I kind of, I've always put the woman first. I've always had this idea that, you know, in some ways we think of design or fashion design as some sort of different element than other areas of design. But if you think of designing a chair or designing a home, you think about the use of that home or the use of that chair, as well as how beautiful that home or that chair is. And I guess I feel the same way about fashion, that ultimately my job as a designer is to create the most beautiful, empowering, wonderful clothes that are going to kind of live in a woman's wardrobe and make her feel incredible. So it's not about always rushing, rushing, rushing in this speed of newness. It's about really considering a garment from start to finish and about how that's really going to be used by the woman who's going to wear it. Do you think things then have changed? Um, has your approach changed? Have you stayed the same? Um, because if, you know things are changing around us and I was just wondering whether those changes, you know, whether it's fast fashion or, you know, this need to constantly consume, has that changed the way kind of you working? I think I, it's actually made me rebel against it, <laughs> strangely. Um, so, yes, I've, I've definitely seen a massive shift in the industry over the sort of, I mean, I've had my business almost 30 years now. And I think what's changed more than anything for me personally is my awareness of what I do and why I do it. And I think as things have sped up, I think I have felt even more the need to slow down that design process, even more the need to, to, to stand out and say, actually, this is really important because if we don't see it as important, it will just go away. It will just disappear. The craft of making something beautiful will be forgotten. And I do actually believe that that's, a fundamentally important part of design. It's, it's not just the way something looks. It's also, you know, it's, it's about that quality and that kind of longevity and that, you know, that beauty. Just by, by considering something, all of the, the aspects of that design process, you can add years to something's life. I feel it's not actually just in fashion, but I think generally speaking, we're designing for obsolescence. We're designing generally with the idea of new, new, new. And, and that has become the business model. We're designing almost for a very short-term consumption pattern, which is 
quite frankly, it's, it's, it's just not sustainable for the planet, for people, for humanity. It's, it's not sustainable at any level. And I think for me, that conscious decision of slowing things down has been how I have evolved during this speeding up, if that makes sense. You, you mentioned craft and you mentioned kind of longevity. Um, the two of those two words instinctively go together. You self-taught, aren't you? I am, yes. How does that kind of translate into this idea of craft and longevity? Because your approach must be different to those designers who, you know, I've trained as a, as a fashion designer and I know that, you know, I've been taught how to cut a pattern. But the approach as somebody who's um, self-taught must be so liberating. It must be very different. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I suppose being self-taught enabled me to be free of any kind of boundaries around that creativity on pattern cutting. And actually, you know, what's, what's interesting is I still do cut my own patterns. Um, and I would say most designers don't. They may be taught it at college, but it's not a part of their process. And it's still quite fundamentally a really important part of my process. And of course, I've evolved as a pattern cutter and designer over the years. And the way I like to think of the pattern, it's, it's, it's the blueprint for a garment. That, that becomes the cut and fit of a garment. And I suppose I evolved a slightly different way of looking at pattern cutting, where instead of looking at, at it purely from a technical perspective, I was looking at it or feeling it on my body because every time I cut something, I made something, I felt it I, and I looked at it in the mirror and I'd say, well, that needs improving, that needs improving. So it's been a constant, in Japan, they call it ikigai. It's a constant um, evolution of one's craft, a constant seeking of becoming better, become, making something more beautiful and more excellent not, you know, you know, keeping the things that are excellent already and then just moving forward with this sense of, I suppose, growing your own skill and development. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's part of what, that's part of what drives me really is the constant desire to make a better and better and better product. I like the Japanese reference because um, it's like the Takumi you know, that's perfecting things over time. And, and like you say, often designers, you know, they might study, um, but when they go into, um, you know, into the workplace, they, they're not making anymore. No, and I think that's a real shame. Well, that's, and that's, that's a, the craft thing, isn't it? That's the craft thing. And to be honest, of course, yes, I'm self-taught. So, you know, when I started out, I didn't know what I was doing either. But I started cutting, making things from, I want to say about 11 or 12. So you evolve pretty quickly. And of course, you make silly mistakes. I mean, you make lots of mistakes along the way. But it's from the mistakes that you learn and you grow and you develop. Then I had the, I suppose, the you know, the joy of when I started making my first collection, the huge learning that comes with that, working with factories for the first time, where they come back and say, well, we can't make this because of X, Y, and Z. So you have to evolve your 
technical skills in a different way. It's not just a great idea anymore or this beautiful drape anymore. It's about how do you really make that function and, and, and go through a production process, which let's say that adds another layer on to, to the skills that you're constantly learning, developing, growing, going back to that, that process again. And I think that's what self-taught does in a way, because you're in some ways more hungry for that growth. You haven't been taught what's right and wrong. And that's what makes it, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very different experience, isn't it? It's a different experience, but you learn from the craftspeople along the way. I mean, I've had some brilliant machinists that I've worked with that have taught me so many different things. Just brilliant people in the industry that have shared their craft and their knowledge that has given me a certain of sort of sense of how, you know, how different aspects of making a garment work. Um, as I've opened myself up to to different areas of, of garments, whether that be tailoring or knitwear or, um, yeah, I mean, lots of different areas, really. And then I would say I've also evolved some things that are, that I've perhaps taught other people how to do, taught my factories how to make or taught machinists how to make, because I've had to figure it out myself, sitting at a sewing machine or working those things out. So it's... Um, it's this constant evolution of learning and growing. So what then is the most exciting thing for you, kind of in your world of work? Well, I think it's exactly that thing. It's that learning, growing, that developing. So I, what I love is to get a new idea and to, to try it out. And that idea can be in many different ways, many different things. Um, you know, I've had so many experiences over the years where people have said, well, it's not possible to do that. I quite like the idea of discovering the possible or pushing the possible or innovating in that way and that doesn't necessarily just have to be in the actual making of a garment but in the way things are done or you know new directions for for things i i mean i was a, a fairly early adopter of um digital pattern cutting um which i started in 2001 and i think at the time i i decided to do that because I realized, you know, I started to get very busy in terms of, you know, being able to having to produce collections and the manual pattern cutting part became quite um, difficult for me to do and still continue with everything else I had to do. So I thought, well, that would probably, you know, I mean, that's one of the challenges of doing your own patterns, but the digital allowed me to work much quicker at making those patterns because I could then see it on the screen. And I also discovered that it opened up my creativity because I was then, instead of, you know, a lot of the things I do are very, very large scale physical patterns that when you're looking at them on a cutting table and it's two meters long by a meter wide and you're trying to figure it out, it's quite different to when you're looking at it on a laptop screen, which is sort of, I don't know, 40 centimeters by 30. And you can visualize it almost like a kind of, it's a bit like looking down from an aeroplane. You get a bird's eye view on something and you can see something different. So I got quite excited about that. And my pattern cutting evolved and developed in quite a big way after digitalizing, you know, digitizing my, my work. In some ways, it added another, in another whole dimension to, to what I was doing. And then I was surprised to learn that when people teach digital pattern cutting at colleges they teach the designers to create the pattern manually and digitize it in which to me was kind of why would you do that because 
actually the whole time saving and even like the physical stuff, let's say it, you save on the physical paper, the physical cutting of the cardboard. When you make things digitally, you save on a huge amount of paper waste and you save on you know, all of that physical stuff. So the only time you really need to, to print anything is when you're actually at the point of making the garment. You can do everything else on the screen. Um, so it was always confusing to me why you would go through all of those iterations of making a pattern, developing things on paper to then digitize it in. Yeah, it, it, it then makes you think because the, the whole kind of process with your, your design process is much more intuitive, isn't it? Because, you know, you'll drape the fabric, you'll paint the fabric, you know, that kind of knowing your work and knowing the way you work. Just tell us a little bit about your design process. It definitely starts with um, working on the body and draping fabric on the body in terms of inspiration. It's quite difficult to explain this, but I'm, I've always been rather good at doing 2D to 3D or 3D to 2D. So if I can see something and how it's draping across my body, I can take that piece of fabric and turn that into a digital pattern without having to put it onto paper first, usually. So I can just imagine it. I can imagine what it would look like as a, and draft it out on screen. And, you know, using measurements and things to give me a sense of that size and proportion, that's, that's sort of usually how it works. And obviously, I've been doing this digitally for almost 20 years now. So I now have a, a digital archive of 20 years of patterns that if I'm unsure about something, I can bring that pattern in, check it, look at the shape of an armhole, for example, or the proportion of one dress against another to see if what I'm drafting feels right. And so that's sort of how it evolves. And quite often, I might sketch something and it evolves into something completely different as I'm creating it and making it. It's a very fluid process. It's, you know, it's not set in stone exactly how I work. Sometimes I get a completely complete flash of this is exactly what it has to look like. Sometimes it's a drape of a fabric on my body. Sometimes it's a detail I see. Sometimes I'm trying to realize a sketch. And from that sketch comes five other things. Um, I tend to be someone who likes to drape, create, feel, and from fitting and putting it on my body, I absolutely know whether to take it forward into something or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's interesting because I, I kind of then think if I were with you in your studio, how I'd respond to that making process. So how do your team respond to that kind of intuition you have for a garment because they've never I'm assuming never worked in that way before so it must be quite an eye, eye opener for them to see how you work yeah I suppose it is um I think generally speaking when it's, we you know even when we take on students in the team we only tend to take on one at a time really and they learn a huge amount when they're here because of I want to call it the really hands-on approach to making a garment. We're building it from the, the we're, we're just building it from inside out. And everybody gets to take part in that fitting process. And that's quite fun because you've suddenly got a kind of, I mean, less so now, of course, because of social distancing. But let's say in the, in the old days, um, pre-COVID, 
you would have a, a your studio full of people, lots of different body shapes, and we're all trying on the same garment, and we've all got different feelings about it, and all got different comments. And for me, that's so exciting to do that, to hear that, and because we're all different as women, you know, I feel one way about a garment when it's on my body. But, you know, my assistant who might be, let's say, she, I'm just theorizing, it's not necessarily real, but let's say I have someone who's, you know, much shorter than me and more petite than me, and she's trying on the same garment, she's going to feel quite different to how I feel. And what's really interesting is you can evolve the fit through that process of trying on different body shapes to tweak the fit so that she feels good in it. And when I put it back on me, I still feel good in it. So rather than having something that works only for me or the fit model or the random person who's trying it on, you now have a garment that's going to work across lots of different women. And I think that is an absolutely critical part of our process. It takes time because you have to make sure you're trying it on lots of different people, taking that feedback, really evolving that cut and that fit. But the result is kind of a little magical in a way, because when a woman puts it on her body, she immediately has a relationship with the garment. She can feel, she says, oh, wow, gosh, this just fits. I don't have to think about it. So is that luxury? <laughs> I think it is. I think it's luxurious because many reasons. In this day and age, one of the biggest luxuries is time. So to put, to be able to slip something on that's that effortless, that makes you feel Im immediately great about yourself, that's a wonderful luxury. You can also, in some ways, I, I believe there's an energy that's created through that creation process because it's coming from the point of view of the woman, that it's almost embracing the woman. It's kind of wrapping around her body. And that's a sense of luxury in terms of how it feels across your body. You know, that relationship of the garment and the person inside it. I've never thought of fashion as a purely looks-based business. I don't really care about the idea of a lookbook in a way, because each garment relies on the person wearing it to evolve their look through wearing the garment. I see that as the magic. So then how then do you think fashion communicates luxury? Well, I think, I think that's a really interesting question because I think that over the last 10 to 15 years, I think that that communication has somewhat got lost. And I think that if I go back to when I was really inspired when I was at school, I used to get these books out of the library all about, you know, the great couturiers. And I would study, I would literally study the way things had been sewn. I wanted to pull a garment to pieces and understand how, how it had been put together. And there was a certain luxury in, in looking at the way something was stitched, the beauty and craftsmanship in that. And there was a communication in a way back then of this is a beautiful fabric. This is beautifully made. You should look after it. You should treasure it. This is luxurious. And I think we've somehow in fashion anyway, slightly forgotten about that. It's become more about new. It's become about who's wearing what. And I, I feel that 
I feel that's not true luxury. So what is? I think it's a combination probably of some of those old-fashioned values that I think shouldn't be forgotten about, that craftsmanship, looking at the quality of fabric, something that feels almost like a treasure and gives you some sort of other area of deep pleasure in a certain way. And I also think that more and more the greatest luxury is becoming time. And I think that's where technology comes in to, I guess, help people either save time or buy time or enjoy things in a different way. Oh, it's interesting because it, I mean, if you think about the old days, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know, I, I remember having a conversation with you about um, kind of fabric suppliers in Paris or in Italy um, that don't even exist anymore mm. and kind of going and looking at those amazing, you know, whether, I don't know, Duchesse satins or um, satin back crepes or all those sorts of things. At that time, I mean, I suppose, you know, it was amazing to see all that stuff, but we don't really have that same stuff around us anymore because there's so much of everything else. Well, there's just too much stuff. I mean, there's too many, there's too much being made. We have, you know, we've got into a different, a very strange business pattern where we believe that more, the, the business model that has become, let's say, acceptable is huge, huge, huge growth. And that growth is achieved by making more stuff that we say to people, you need to have this because it's new and throw away your old. But that's never going to be sustainable to have that business model. There's a, you know, in some ways, the, let's call it the old fashioned business model, whereby there was a limit to how many of a, you know, Hermes bag might be able to be produced in a year, for example, because of the amount of time it takes to make one. And there's a certain amount of man hours. There's a certain amount of craft in that. You expect that, got that bag to last a certain amount of time because it's been put together in a certain way. I also think the craftspeople that make it probably get a certain amount of joy in making it. And I would say that a return to some of those values, certainly in the luxury sector, would not go amiss. I think there is another business model that clearly works because it's still working for some of those luxury brands that still do operate their business in those ways. Yeah, I mean, I... You know, this idea of kind of producing so much stuff. I just wonder how that kind of resonates with the, you know, customer who queues outside um, stores selling, I don't know, five pairs of socks for 99p. You know, I think it's an educational process, <laughs> it, truly. I mean, we have basically brought up a whole generation of individuals to believe that more is okay. So it's a re-education of perhaps a different set of values before we lose the craft, or we will lose the craft. It will be gone, and, and only the top couture people will be able to ever afford it. If we don't build it into future business models across all levels and value it in a different way, that essential craft will be gone. I mean, I think you're right, because 
you know, when you think about these big luxury brands and they have their heritage, you know, whether it's oh, um, the you know brands in the LVMH group or wherever they might be, you know, the amount of stuff they produce, you know, it's not ten bags anymore; it's hundreds of thousands. But not only are they producing that, the diversification has extended out to kids. And what you were just saying, you know, there's a younger generation thinking more is better. It's been perpetuated by these bigger brands who are thinking, well, it's okay to make, oh, I don't know, jeans or shoes or a dress for kids that are four hundred pounds. Um, because the, you know, I was just wondering what you think. What do you think that about that? You know, where you've got this, it's it's not only teenagers, but it's going down to. And I'm guilty of this. I must say, I bought a Dior Baby Grow for my godson. I do just think why, you know, I think why, why would you do that? But that, so in my mind, I'm now just thinking, you know, that starts at a baby now. Well, I think that's a, it's a complicated one to unravel that because you start then being naming the brands that are following one Mm. way and the brands that are following another. But Truly, I see nothing wrong with buying something that's beautiful and luxurious for any age that you might treasure and keep. I've always had the belief that you should buy the best you can afford because it will last longer. I think the sad part of that is that money and the price you pay for something doesn't always equal the quality of something these days in a way that it used to. But I think the principles behind that are strong and solid. I think it just the business itself that perhaps needs to rethink and say, if I'm going to price myself at this part of the market and call myself luxury, then I will be making everything to a certain level. And it's not about getting the biggest margin possible. It's also about standing there and saying, this is what I stand for. Because what has happened is because of the speed of things, luxury brands have said, actually, well, I can. Nobody cares if it's throwaway. So it doesn't really matter if it's made in the same way as it used to be made. And as I, as I go back to that whole thing at the beginning where I said, well, you know, what drives you? What do you what's happened to you over this period of time? Well, I wanted to slow down and say, actually, I will stand for that. I will stand for the fact that, I, I mean, I know that my things will last 10, 15, 20 years, you know, worn a lot, not just worn occasionally, worn a lot. You know, even the, you know, we made face masks. I mean, I've washed them, you know, they washed every day, obviously, because they're washable face masks. And they still look like new. They've probably been washed 50, 60, 70 times in my washing machine. And that's just a face mask. But I believe in that. I believe in that idea that a garment should, you know, should, it shouldn't even be about just 30 wears. It should be about much more than 30 wears. It should be in your wardrobe for a long time. And we need to rethink how we dress. I came across actually a very interesting, um, I think it was a TED talk, actually, which was something like a t- something about a 10 item wardrobe. And it was the story of this girl from America who had gone to Paris to do some sort of internship or some such thing. And the person who she was working with or staying with was always immaculately and beautifully dressed. And she had hardly anything in her wardrobe, but everything she had in there 
was of a certain level. And I think there's a huge lesson in that. Something that we've forgotten about in this constant, we've got to have new, new, new. Yeah. I mean, longevity is kind of, you know, you, I mean, instinctively, one would think that you would want to have something that lasts for a long time, um, that you could kind of treasure rather than just picking something up and wearing it once and discarding well, here's, it. Here's the thing. I gave an interview, actually, it was about a, a year ago. Um, it was just pre-Christmas and um, it was an interview for The Guardian. It was supposed to be about capsule wardrobe. Um, and I think this ended up being published in February. Um, but what I'd actually said at the time was the truth is we only wear maybe 20% of our wardrobe. So what I always work with, say, let's say for my clients, and it's part of what we do, it's part of the sort of, let's say, education that I like, I believe in for just freeing people up about their wardrobe and about what works for them is really think, look at that 20%. And I think a lot of people have had a lot of time during this pandemic, just during this time to kind of clear out their closets and say, well, why did I buy all of this stuff? But actually there are pieces you keep going back to time and time again. And that is different for every single person. You'll have a different capsule. It's not you know, people talk about this capsule wardrobe, the black trousers, the black dress. It's not about that at all. Your capsule, that 20% you go back to is you. It says something about you as a woman because ultimately that's what clothes are for. And if you can tune into that 20%, really know what that is, then absolutely everything you buy, you question in your mind, is this going to be one of my treasures? Is this going to be one of my 20%? Then when you buy it, you'll keep reaching for it. You'll keep wearing it. It'll keep going back on your body and you will get joy from it, not just for one season, but for a lifetime. You'll find different ways to wear it, different ways to style it over the years as you grow and evolve because you're buying it for you. You're buying it for your own joy. Do you think luxury could be defined by an object you know, is it a piece of clothing or, I mean, is it something that you go out and buy but is not affected by the price? Doesn't matter where you've bought it. Is it, is it about price? I suppose that's the question. And is it always about this tangible object? You know, I, I don't think it's about price at all. And I don't, I think, as I said, increasingly luxury is becoming about time. So I feel that, you know, and, and time is becoming the greatest luxury in a certain way. And as the world speeds up, that time to just pause, to have creative thought, to be and not do has become, certainly for me personally, has become my greatest luxury because there's a constant sort of expectation of being on the whole time in the current world. And I truly believe that the greatest creativity comes when we're off and not on. In some ways, I think that's where the future of luxury will go into buying us more of that valuable time. And that can be in many, many ways. So then, you know, this thing, I keep thinking about, you know, this idea of buying more and more that we We've been speaking about buying more and more and more stuff, and it's okay to buy all that stuff. What 
impact do you think this must have or this has or is continuing to have what impact is kind of this constant consumption having on kind of our mental health and well-being gosh that's an even bigger question i mean i think um <laughs> i think cer- certainly for the, for for the younger generation this whole pressure to be i don't know seen to have certain things um i'm beginning to see it with my son now at school you know he's got this and he's got that so i need one of those whatever that thing is um it's you know it's quite interesting to see and i think also how social media has really affected um the younger generation and actually i don't think it's i i, I think that kind of the the effect on mental health is just not good which is i suppose going back to that what is the greatest luxury it's you know we we're, we're all taking time off of our devices and such things now and i think that will continue to be important and become more and more important as we start to realize the the detrimental effect on our on our minds on feeling that we must have all of the time um because i personally don't think it's a good thing i think it's um we're forgetting the art of being and the art of being as opposed to the art of doing and having is where real creativity comes from it's where the future is going to come from how do we stop this kind of um or not stop but how do we change people's attitude to this wasteful behavior i think it's education i think the pandemic has certainly slowed things down um from what i can see it certainly made a lot of people question things we're seeing more and more people becoming conscious um around that aspect of waste you know i sustainability in fashion's been around for a long time but everyone's talked about fiber and fabric and um i had maintained for for years that you know i mean you can't the volume of consumption that was going on that you know even if you swapped out all of the normal cotton for organic cotton there just wouldn't be enough resource that we needed to if we really want to address sustainability we have to to address it holistically and holistically means looking at the whole industry and and really what where the kind of the main issue is and it's it's in the volume the volume of things which it's not even how much people are consuming there's also the fact that so much of it doesn't even get sold and it goes straight to landfill it's not even being consumed so it's just too much and we have to the the education process is beginning because i think there's an awareness now in a way that there wasn't even 12 months ago around that whole area it's not just about you know it was about fiber and fabric then it became about fiber and fabric and how much people were getting paid now that whole element of well how much is being produced and how much do we actually need is beginning to be spoken about and i think once that starts to become more important to people in the same way as this has happened in other industries i believe we'll have a shift which is directed by the consumer that moves to a more sustainable future for the fashion industry what is the role that younger people kind of could play in this you know you've got greta thunberg who is an advocate for kind of saving the planet 
on one hand, you've got that, let's say, the planet. But then on the other hand, you've got, oh, let's go out and buy a new pair of shoes or a new this or a new that. And there's so much stuff. How do we reconcile that? Well, I think it starts, it starts with consciousness. It starts with the idea that if we go back to the idea that when we're buying that new pair of shoes, we're buying it for the 20% of our wardrobe. Even if you just take that single thought in your mind, you're immediately, over time, going to consume less and consume better because you're going to spend less money. So you'll have a bit more money per garment to invest in something that's going to last that bit longer. I mean, what's been really interesting over the years to me, I've, I've seen that firsthand with my clients who then come to me and say, you know, I realize I just get so many more compliments on the things that I wear that are yours. And they, over time, buy more and more from me, not in volume, by the way, huh? they buy one or two pieces a season, maybe. Some people buy one piece a year, depends on their budget, but they'll keep it and still be wearing it 10, 15 years later. So what you're doing is you're building that capsule wardrobe that's yours, that's something that speaks to you as a person over time. It's completely shifting mentality, saying that that's okay to invest in yourself in that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, and then that's interesting. I mean, because I mean, then that leads so nicely onto this um, idea of technology, because that must play. You know, there's a connection between this idea of 20 and technology in that, you know, you are now able to shop in a very different way. You're now able to cut a pattern in a very different way. You're now able to kind of work with your clients completely differently. You know, they don't have to necessarily even try anything on because you know what size they are. And, you know, talking earlier about your way of working um, it's very much about kind of the 3D visual. Um, you can look at somebody, you can look at their bodies. So I was just wondering that there is a connection between that kind of overconsumption and tech. And I was just wondering how that works for you, because I know you've been pioneering, you know, different ways of working. Yeah. Well, I always had this perhaps crazy vision that, you know, in some ways you can still explore all of the creativity. Now, you don't even need to make a real garment anymore. You can drape something digitally, visualize something digitally. We're now seeing, you know, fashion shows that are modeled with models that aren't really models that are essentially avatars. And I've been working with a company that essentially does that for the last couple of years. Um, and do this whole virtual runway show. So if you take that one stage further to let's imagine that there's the possibility of creating 100% digitally and that people could shop from seeing something on a runway show that they like and that things could be made to order from that, you collate the orders and because it's not about having it now, it doesn't matter if you wait a few weeks to have it made then you have a whole different business model that perhaps it's a fantasy, but that would be incredible. It would be zero waste. I just thought of something. You know, you get these avatars in, you know, the gaming world where you can go in and you can you could have a, sh a Maria Grashvogel shop in um, Fortnite where people could go and buy their 
kind of outfits. But it's, you know, if you're not going out as much, but using social media a lot, you can buy these virtual clothes that you just post on social media that have been fitted perfectly for you without having any waste or the actual thing and still have your 20 garments in the wardrobe for when you do go out. For when you do go out, yes. I mean, I think, you know, I'm actually, strangely enough that you say that, I've actually been looking at that too because I feel that the social media thing's not really going to go away and it means you can have, let's say, a bit of fun with something without A, spending a lot of money, B, creating any waste and I think you've got, let's say, you can still have the fun of dressing up and playing about with clothes and fashion, the creativity that comes with that, but without impacting the planet at all in any way. But in terms of real clothes, you start to dress for who you are as a person. And not, you know, my brand is not going to be suitable for every single person because it's not what everybody wants to wear. But the people that resonate with what I do, know that when they come to me, every time they'll be able to find something new to put into what they already own, it will all, always work back with not only the pieces that I've created for them, but also other pieces in their wardrobe. Because if you buy from that point of view, if you buy for you and for your 20%, then it always works out like that. And you'll always wear it and love it and enjoy it. Maria, that was fantastic. Um great conversation as always. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, for spending this, um, this time with me. And we will, shall see you in the out and open as soon as lockdown, uh, <laughs> as, as, as soon as lockdown <laughs> ends. Maria Grashvogel, thank you very much thank uh, you. for joining us on this podcast. And thanks to our partners, Intellect Books. And thank you for listening. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.